Amen. You may find your seat, please. Thank you so much for being here and worship this morning. Um, hopefully you've gotten a good start to your weekend. Today's going to be a wonderful part of it. Uh, as I mentioned to you last week, my, my youngest turned 10 this weekend yesterday, and so we're out of the single digits. And So it was fun, but it was a little depressing, and it was a whole big bag of an emotional mess, and that was kind of just who I am. So it just kind of seemed to fit this past weekend, but we had a had a great time going around doing a lot of stuff with him. Uh, we are going to be, uh, and I and I kind of need to just, uh, I kind of need to jump in if you if you'd allow me to do that this morning into where we're going to be going in scripture, um, chapter seven in John. Uh, for if you've ever been around me for long enough to go, man, this is um, well. I always say ADHD. I think I've lost the H over the years because. I don't have the energy to be H anymore, um, but if you've ever if you've ever listened to me and been like, this is just a little tough to follow. This guy's brain seems to be going directions that that no one's brain should go. Um, I, I and again, I always apologize for that. But John chapter seven almost sounds a little bit like this. In fact, this week um, I just I, I don't normally do it, but I just I I kind of took a lot of my notes and just kind of put them on. Um, a whiteboard that's in uh, the first room that you, you pass when you come in those doors out there. And I just kind of need to put it all over the board just to just see, all right, God, what, like what all you're saying? Because God's message is always, it's always right to the point. It, it always comes through. Um, but there seems to be all these different kind of offshoots. Um, and, and really what, I, what, I, what God helped me see was this, this beautiful message through this part of his, his book. Um, so I want to be faithful to um, all the things that are in there but I also want us to arrive um, where I believe that God is, is leading us. Um, as you listen this morning, if you, if you, if you want a couple of extra notes or, or, some, or you kind of miss writing down something, um, it, it may still be on there. I haven't been in that room this morning, um, but I actually will have up here on this table just to kind of remind me of some things. Like that's my whiteboard from this week. It's just kind of a jumbled thing of um, ADHD goodness when it comes to Jesus, right? So um, if you want to take a picture of that board or, or if you want this or um, or, or, or I, I'm sure I could kind of get this a little bit more organized than what it is uh, that maybe would help you if there's something that you're curious uh, um, about. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to jump in this morning. So John chapter 7, um, at this point, um, Jesus has done much to start to say some things and do some things that will really set up a very clear line. And on one side of that line is, is belief in Jesus and on the other side of that line is, is unbelief in who Jesus is. And, and honestly, he wants to do this so clearly, um, not to irritate us, not to make it hard, but just to make it clear what really believing Jesus and walking faithfully with him looks like, because it does look like something, it sounds like something, and what it is to not follow him. Because it's, it's, that, it's that life that we try to live sometimes where it, we're either a believer kind of living backwards in unbelief or we're, or, or, or we're an unbeliever kind of trying to lean in and look a little bit or enough like a believer to kind of get by. It's that, it's that middle ground that we don't just kind of really mess things up for ourselves, but we really create a mess, big old mess, for everybody that we're connected to in life. So it's this thing of belief and unbelief. Now, I want to start with the idea of belief, belief in Jesus. Uh, why is belief in Jesus so important? In the book of John, we see this really clear message that belief in Jesus is what brings us into the kingdom. 
Belief in Jesus is what brings us into a relationship with God through him and only through him. Um, I want to I just kind of throw four verses at you that you can make note of. You may want to go back and kind of reread these or, or please memorize them um, when, when you can. Why is belief so important? In John 1.12, where it talks about just who Jesus is, um, God in the flesh, living on this earth, it says that belief in Jesus gives us the right to be called children of God, um, that, that our salvation has, if you will, inalienable rights with it. That as we live our daily life, we have the pleasure and the privilege of living as one of his kids, one of his children. So if you have any kind of um, basis of not the baggage of a parent-child relationship, but what a good parent-child relationship looks like, then you you can begin as well as I can just begin to know what a relationship with God has the potential looking like. Um, John 3.16 is such a familiar verse that many of us um, know well, but we, we saw when we were looking in chapter 3 that John 3.16 was a conversational verse between Jesus and Nicodemus when he told him not just how great God's love is, but he says that if you believe in him, if you believe in Jesus, that you will have eternal life. That our belief in Jesus is what begins that. See, eternal life isn't just what waits on us in heaven, it's what we begin in our relationship with God now. And it's not even just the goodness that we get. In John 3.36, it says that eternal life also keeps us away from ultimate judgment and the wrath of God. That it's not just the life that we get to live in him, but it's also the life that is free from that judgment because of Jesus' grace. And then, of course, uh, John 20.31 that we have come back to many times, just the heart of this gospel of John where John is, is, is on his heart through the Holy Spirit writes, um, that, that this book, all these things are written so that you may believe and live. And, and see, that's, that's that big step into not just believing, but also living the life of a Jesus follower that we're called to consider what that really means. Maybe a commonality in the room or a commonality in your faith journey has been you've been able to easily find people that believe in Jesus, but when we really step back, we find that the, the great difficult moments of life sometimes are what really define what does it mean to live for him. Well, to help us kind of get a good picture of what belief should look like, Jesus actually starts with two very clear examples of unbelief. The first one is from his brothers, not his disciples, but his actual brothers, his half-brothers, considering that um, Mary was his biological mother, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit miraculously. So God is his father, Mary is his mother. These were his half-brothers. So this would have been um, James and Simon and Judas, not Iscariot, but, um, but, but the Judas, his brother, and, and others. And, and it's, it's in their unbelief that we start with. Then we're going to roll into the unbelief of the crowd, the Jews that were around him. Now, in particular, it's very interesting that he starts with these brothers because what most people take for, for evidence is that the very first writing in the New Testament era was written, inspired by God, but written by James, Jesus' brother, who at this point, it's made very clear, he doesn't believe in Jesus. There was a point where his own brother did not believe in him, but he was used by God to write one of the most functional books on really what does it mean to be a Christian. I mean, the stuff that James wrestles with was, is everyday real things like how hard it is just to control what we say. Do you ever just have a difficulty controlling what flies out of your mouth? I, I do. 
Um, he, he talks about the, um, the, the issues that arise when people show favorites um, and how that doesn't match the gospel because everyone is loved by God. And when we just favor certain people, it just rubs us wrong as believers or, or non-believers. So right here we start with an example of their <clears throat> actual unbelief. Um, we're going to be going all through chapter 7. We're not going to read all these verses. Um, Matt has been very kind and very patient with me this morning. I saw the look in his eyes when I was just like, I have no idea what to tell you right now. I mean, I just I, we're going to be all over the place. And he kind of had that real nice Christian bless your heart look. And uh, we know what that means. So I just kind of look back with a, you know, same to you, buddy. Um, so... He is, he, is on to, he is more than on top of this this morning. He's going to take us, help us go through this. Um, verse 1 in chapter 7. After this, Jesus traveled to Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. <clears throat> Sounds like a legitimate no-go, no-fly zone for me. If I knew somebody was going to throw harpoons at me, I'm going to avoid that beach. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him. So this is, this is, this is introducing it. So, so listen up here. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now this seems a little bit odd. His brothers seem to be seeing him do things that were almost kind of like what seems like maybe a private show. I, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if they were just around the house and somebody needed something, so he was levitating something across the room. I don't know what he was doing, but he said, look, just go, and even your disciples, your followers, they need to see this. They said, look, people don't hide if they're trying to get public recognition. But we know already that's not what Jesus was after. He wants to be known, but it's a very different thing for Jesus to be known and just get public fame. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. This is, this is so great. We're going to go down to about verse 14 and, and kind of double back, but I want to say this real quick. Jesus tells them this, um, even though his day of crucifixion and his morning of resurrection had not yet gotten there, he tells them, your time is always at hand. In other words, every moment that they had to be able to see and hear Jesus was a moment, an opportunity that was specific to something in their life. And even though the resurrection and the, and the crucifixion has passed, every time in our lives that we hear God's word, that we sense Jesus teaching us something, we sense his leading in any way, that is a specific moment that is at hand for us to be able to know and, and, and have God communicate to us what he, what he wills. Jesus told them, my Time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After, after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up. Not openly, but secretly. Now, Jesus didn't lie. He just said, listen, I'm not going at this phase of the festival. You go ahead and go up there. He was willing to send them on. There was a purpose in sending them on ahead. He just said, I'm not going yet. He goes, but he goes low-key, undercover, not publicly seen, kind of slips in the back. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he is deceiving people. 
Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Say, so, okay, well, where's, where's the unbelief in here? Let's make sure that we see it clearly. Jesus' brothers felt very, um, very on the spot socially. Um, probably persecuted. If you notice, many times people were talking about Jesus. They were even asking where he was. So, so this seemed to point the lens, kind of point the camera, point the focus, point the spotlight on his brothers. Now his brothers, it was very simple. Um, Jesus had talked about who he was in public. So they, they knew who he was claiming to be. They just didn't simply believe it. And their strategy was, listen... Even though we don't believe this, obviously you can do some things that no one else can do. So just go do those things publicly, and at the very least, it'll calm down the questions. Because surely people can't deny what they see physically in front of them. See, his brothers were looking for um, social acceptance. They were looking for a comfort level that they didn't have. And they were fine with Jesus showing off but they just weren't ready to really walk through who he really was and knowing him. And that's a rough life to live. That's a, that's a hard path to pursue. When, when, when your acceptance, when your comfort is based on something that you, you, you feel like others are, are at disposable to give to you, but you can't seem to find yourself. The disagreement was, was great. They wanted Jesus to go publicly, and Jesus slipped in privately. They didn't like that. And when he did decide to go public, he went public with his message, not his miracles. Remember what miracles are, right? What, what, what is it? it starts with an S? Signs. The signs are there and they're meant to show people something physical that's supposed to teach them a bigger spiritual lesson. Jesus had done these miracles. These were people that had seen him, had heard about him. They knew enough about him to talk junk about him. Jesus needed to make sure that they didn't miss, didn't not hear the message. And too many were hearing, seeing the signs and missing the message, so he made sure that they heard his words. His brothers were frustrated because they felt like the scrutiny was on them. Jesus tells them, he says, listen, they don't, it's not that they hate you. They hate me. And the reason why they hated Jesus, he told them. And it was, I mean, it's really convicting if you think about it. Jesus says, listen, they hate me because I've talked to them about their lives. And their lives are messy. And if, if you follow that logic, think about it. If you ever deal in someone's life, not from a distance, but up close and personal, and, and you're dealing with the details and the mess of life, there's people that don't understand why you're doing that. They don't get why you sit and have a conversation or why you eat lunch with someone. They don't get why you're so patient with some people in your lives. And, and, and they just don't get it because others don't like to be around the mess of life, the sin of life. People don't like it for, to, for it to be called out. We, we don't like to talk about it publicly. But that's not necessarily the life that Jesus calls us to when he calls us to follow him. So their unbelief, their frustration was, that, was not that Jesus might be the Messiah, but he was... If he was the Messiah, he was one that they didn't like the look of. He was not the one that they thought that he would be. They were looking for public affirmation. They were looking for comfort. They were looking to lower the level of drama. And they couldn't seem to find it. And they were very frustrated that he didn't seem to just fix that. 
Then there's the crowd. We already see the crowd and some of the evidence of what's going on in their mind. We've already read a little bit about them. Um, but I want to I pick back up here um, in, in this next verse, verse 15. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. Um, the fact that Jesus was able to teach what he taught and know the law the way he knew it and, and, and quote scripture the way he knew it and make the connections the way he could, it, 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 was, it was actually God showing evidence that he didn't spend years and year in, years in school. It was something that was already downloaded into the mainframe. It was, what, it was the message that had already come from his father from heaven. The, the reason that he could speak the way he could was simply evidence of who he came from. It was actually to to the world's benefit that they saw something that didn't quite seem to make sense because it invited them to look deeper. He said, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? This is the public response. You have a demon. The crowd responded, who is trying to kill you? I performed one work. This is Jesus' response. I performed one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Um, the, the New Living Translation says, says it this way. Jesus tells them to, to look beneath the surface. In other words... Let's look at the reasons why you're complaining, why you're saying what you're saying. See, this is, this is really it. Um, Jesus points out their unbelief as it, was, as it was coming out in their inconsistency. Consistency is something that's very difficult in the Christian walk. Uh, quite honestly, for me personally, when, when I see that, um, when I see that the, the details of lives are not really clicking, that the, the just something seems off, whether it's I, I need to be closer to the Lord or I just, I just don't, seem to, I don't seem to be able to make anything work right. It just doesn't seem to go well, um, whether it's at home or at work or wherever it is. Oftentimes for me personally, one of the first places that God takes me is to my own inconsistency because God is consistent in what he does. Jesus is, is, is God in the flesh, so he's consistent in everything he does. In fact, it, it comes out very clearly this way. See, here's, here's really the explanation behind this. If you remember when we were in John chapter 5, Jesus healed someone, completely healed them. Take up your mat and walk. And they got mad at him. They hated him and even wanted to kill him because he did it on the Sabbath, right? This is the evidence that religious people have always been the same. Only religious people would get mad and irritated because something amazing happens that wasn't at their convenience. It never happens with church people, right? So he's, he's asking me, he's like, look, I did one thing. I did one thing. In fact, even his explanation in John chapter 5, if you remember it, he said, listen, uh, he said, the Father, we took a rest on the first Sabbath. 
But when sin entered the world, he said, we have been working ever since to restore people to God. Jesus said, listen, I'm working on the Sabbath because we've always been working on Sabbaths. It's the reason you've been able to take a rest. Because Jesus didn't need to be restored to the Father. His relationship was already good. That's the purpose of Sabbath rest. Right? So he tells him, he says, listen, I did one thing. I actually healed someone. And you're griping about it. He said, now, let's talk about consistency. I said we're always working, and we worked on the Sabbath. He said, let's talk about your consistency. He said, when the, the, the law gives that on the eighth day that a, that a male was supposed to be circumcised, either as a baby or if someone was going through the religious process of becoming a Jew, they would then, if they were uncircumcised, be circumcised. And he says this. He says, listen, if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, you still do that. Now, I don't know about you, but... I don't know what your understanding is of circumcision, but either for um, the one performing it or the one um, it happening to, I would call that work. Because if you got to roll up your sleeves and do this process, or you got to sit there and take a deep breath, and no matter which way you go, this is labor. Okay, this is labor, right? So he tells him, "Listen, I, like you're telling me, nothing can be done on the Sabbath, but on the eighth day, if it lands on that day." You still go get them. He says, so what's the deal? And, and, and here's the irony. Here's the irony. Circumcision was an outward sign that they were part of the family of God. Jesus was healing someone to show their acceptance, his great love for them, and that their whole life could be restored. He wasn't trying to even, he didn't care about the outward sign. He was trying to teach them something about their souls. And he said, y'all want to kill me for this? But y'all do this all the time? And if you think about it, think about these two struggles. If you're at a place in life where you either find or, or look for your comfort in what other people say, or you live inconsistently. I know for me, if I, when, when, if I ever struggle, and when I struggle with those two things, belief in Jesus is not often really what I'm showing. Now, at this point, this is where it almost kind of seems to diverge a little bit, a little bit of these ADHD offshoots. But I want you to stay with me because the, the central message is going to keep coming back clearer and clearer and clearer. Remember, we started with this idea of what unbelief looks like, and it's calling us into the belief in Jesus. So what, is, what does now belief look like? Okay, we've seen unbelief. Now, what, is, what does belief look like? I want to start with this. Some of the people of Jesus, I'm some, sorry, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know that he is the Messiah? But we know where the man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. After, after he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own. But the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. See, this is the first of three times in John 7 that Jesus' um, background and where he's from is called into question. Now, in this particular example, people are looking at Jesus and going, well, maybe they've actually figured out that this is the messenger, this, this prophet, this Messiah, this chosen one from God. But hang on a second. If he's that one, 
Like, we're not supposed to just know where the Messiah comes from. Like, we're supposed to be able to just know the ordinary details of his life. We know this guy. We know the neighborhood he grew up in. And Jesus says, yes, you know that identity of me. He said, but what you're, what you're disconnecting is this, that, that I am from God, I am from heaven. And this is a God that you don't really know well enough. So you really don't know where I'm from if you don't really know him. So essentially his answer to them is, you're right. You won't know really where the Messiah is coming from and you don't really know where I'm from. And he has that, that really perfect answer for them, that, that clarifying answer. But it's only clear if you stay in, if you dig in, if you listen in, and if you consider what he's saying. Second time it comes up, they start talking about Galilee. And they say, you know, surely uh, no prophet is coming from Galilee. And it actually is, Galilee's actually specifically mentioned twice. And they say, you know, it, it can't be God's messenger. It can't be the Messiah if he comes from Galilee. But check this out. There's a couple prophecies, one in Hosea and one in Isaiah, that talk about how the Messiah is going to be the fulfillment of this entire journey that the children of Israel have taken. Now, if you, if you know and think about this, what country was Jesus sent to following when his parents found out that his life was at risk and they had to flee. What country did he go to? Egypt. Do you remember where the children of Israel were enslaved? Egypt. He went to Egypt because of persecution and had to stay there. But when the time came and God spoke, they were able to leave Egypt for Galilee. Galilee was a city that had been in spiritual and economic ruin, and it had been restored. They end up in Galilee, this picture of a city that was chosen, a city that God had prophesied that he would bring back, if you will, a promised land. Where did the children of Egypt, where did the children of Israel leave after they left slavery? God freed them out of slavery in Egypt. Where were they supposed to head to? The promised land. They didn't get there for years. Why? Because of their complaining and their sin. Jesus got to Galilee without sin, without complaint. And out of Galilee, he finished the journey that God had sent them for. That's the second time. The third time, they said this. They said, listen, the Messiah's not going to come from Galilee. He's supposed to come from the line and the lineage of David. He's supposed to be from Nazareth, from Bethlehem specifically. Jesus then, like, I, I would have to start laughing. Where was Jesus born? Boom, baby. You thought you had me where you, you weren't supposed to know where I came from? Answered that one. You brought up Galilee where I really kind of grew up mainly? Got you on that one. And now you want to call out line and lineage of David? Well, see, there was this very selfish thing going on called a census when, 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 my, when my mom was pregnant with me. And our family had to leave there because we were from the line and lineage of David. And we had to go to Nazareth, to Bethlehem, and that's where I was born. Boom! What you got now? It's amazing. Jesus had the perfect answer to all three questions. Three questions that never seemed like they could ever all three line up. So what's this underlying message of belief? It's the core belief in life that Jesus has the answers. 
And when you don't think life can line up, when you don't think the details of your life can line up with a gospel-centered explanation, when you don't think that there could be a purpose for what you've gone through, when you don't think it can, restoration can happen, when you don't think any of that stuff is possible, he has not just the perfect answers, sometimes answers that we need to stay in there a little bit longer and get the full meaning of, but, but he has them in a way that, that no other logic can align because it's out of the wisdom of Jesus. Now after that, Again, what looks like another offshoot, he brings up the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I do that, I, I want to kind of mention this to you because this is this is something that just seems like it's almost dropped in here. I don't, I don't want it to go unnoticed. Um, after Jesus responds to them, it, it says this in verse um, verse thirty. Then they tried to seize him. Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Three times it's mentioned that they wanted to capture him. And, and when you really look at the original language, it's not just that they didn't. It carries this meaning that they couldn't. Now, one of the specific times um, is here. It, it, it follows and sounds very similar the next time. But I want to read you the third one. Um, if, you, if you drop down into verse, I believe it's 45, they don't ever make the numbers as big as the letters in Bible printing. I don't know why, because this is the part that frustrates me. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? In other words, why as officers did you not capture him and bring him in here the way that we had talked about? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. The first time we hear this idea of, of him being captured, it's anchored to this understanding of it wasn't time yet. Because he did ultimately get arrested. He did ultimately have people lay their hands on him. It happened, but it happened at the right time. The second explanation of why they didn't capture him is not just about the timing, the will of God, but it's because he spoke with the word of God. And when he spoke this truth, it sent hearts into this moment where there wasn't so much certainty anymore. It called into question, what do I do? What decision do I make? And I want to encourage you for a second. I really do want to encourage you through this. No matter what you have experienced in life or what you are going through now, the more that you and I can walk in the will of God and live in the truth of his word, the more that we can rest in, like Jesus, it may be allowable by God for them to talk about you, but they may not be able to lay a hand on you. And, and if they do at some point, it will only be by the divine appointment and timing of God. They can't touch you before that. Now, that doesn't deny the truth that words sting and words hurt. It doesn't deny that, that life can be messy. But it builds into us a confidence of the sovereign God that we serve. Jesus throws in, like I told you, something else that seems almost unrelated. But, but, but think about this from the perspective of belief and unbelief. 
He says this, on the last day, the most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the, Spirit, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Now, this is John writing, but looking back. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. John looks back and writes about this, and he, he says it with certainty. The ones that believed were getting ready to get the Spirit, even, they didn't, even though they didn't know that yet. But he writes it with certainty because it happened, and he saw it in his lifetime. But this is the way it describes the Holy Spirit. Remember, already in the book of John, it's not written just in time order. It's written for a purpose. Jesus has already said well that he is this living bread, this, this everlasting fountain of water. He creates this idea, and he, he, he tells us this idea so it's firm in our mind, that, that he will satisfy us, and he will always resource us in a full and complete way. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a well at my house. I don't ever think about my well. Um, I, I drive up to my house. I don't check and see if it disappeared. Um, I, I, don't, I don't wonder if it goes um, to sleep at night. Um, I, I, my relationship with my well is this. When I go in my house or I'm there, if I turn on the water to wash my hands, if I need to brush my teeth, if I go to flush the toilet, whatever I do that involves water, take a shower, I, my anticipation is that if I try to access it, if I turn it on, it will be there and it will be in full supply. Now, I want you to consider the Holy Spirit for a second. Um, Jesus says part of his fulfilling, part of his um, everlast thirst quenching that he does, is he says, I will put in you this source that will be living. In other words, it will have purpose. It will have intention. It will be active about your life. But it will be everlasting. It will never run out. But not unlike your plumbing, um, you have to intentionally be willing to interact with God's Spirit. Otherwise, it's a living resource that's sitting in wait. I figured that out in my life. When I just want to go solve my own problems, guess what? God lets me go try to solve my own problems. He doesn't force the Holy Spirit's voice into my heart when I refuse to listen. He's patient. His timing's perfect but I have to willingly engage in the, in the voice of the Holy Spirit that matches the truth of God's word to know what he says. So that's, that's belief. So where does belief take us? As a snapshot, where does belief take us? Um, we, we pick back up with this guy, Nicodemus. You remember him from chapter 3? We, we get to revisit his story here for just a moment. Now, nowhere in this chapter does it say that... Um, unbelief keeps someone from Jesus forever, that he's just unaccessible to them because he just, once you say no to him one time, he just, he, he's, he's washing his hands of you. It also doesn't say that, that if you um, firmly believe Jesus and you know you're saved, then life is always just these magical two words, clean and easy. But consider, consider Nicodemus' journey where he's at and, and struggling in his belief, wanting to get the answers and hear answers from Jesus. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? This is the crowd. Remember, these are, these are the ones that should have captured Jesus. Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. This is the second time that a group of people have tried to act so educated that they're using their education to just 
downgrade um, the, the mental abilities of believers in Christ. You know, this is still a pretty common thing. Um, many of our college students, especially, and some of our high school students, if you have conversations with them, they'll talk to you, they'll interact with you, and they'll tell you what are they experiencing in that stage in their life. They're, they're interacting with intellectuals on college campuses that want to use what they say is a superior intellect to, to, to prove the foolishness of God. When in reality, we can take the intellect that God gives us, the truth of God's word, consider the world we live in, and have just as informed and educated conversations. But in a second, you're going you're gonna to see a little bit of their frustrated reaction. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them. In other words, yes, he came to Jesus, and yes, he's also been a Pharisee. He's been in both rooms. He said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows that he's doing what he's doing, does it? He doesn't just yell at them. He brings up a legitimate point in their law. And who did the Jews claim their law came from? God. What's the wisdom of God like? He puts into the heart of man a law that they would have to obey to be what they thought was faithful that would require them to listen to Jesus. God takes the foolishness of man's heart and still works his wisdom through it. That had to be a little bit of like this moment where, like in heaven, God's got to be like, <laughs> y'all didn't see that one coming. And, and what is the educated, what is the educated commission's reaction? Well, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Oh, thank you. We, we, were, we were supposed to be on an education level conversation, and when that didn't work for us, we just started hurling insults. He says, well, you're not from there too, are you? They replied, Investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee, except you will. Now, this is an amazing moment, not just in their time, but for us to look at this chapter and consider the difference between belief and unbelief. And really the honesty that that, 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 that portrays, and, and, and it, it, it walks us into, because here's the reality. Belief in Jesus doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It means that we, in our hearts, know that Jesus does and we're willing to go to him, even if it's over and over and over for understanding that we lack and the trust and the confidence that everything that we need will come from him. That doesn't mean that we're not educated people. It means that we know the perfect source to go to. And it also means that within his wisdom and within his love and grace, he put that spirit of knowledge and that spirit of revelation inside of us so that we can understand it. Because Jesus was clear about many, many things. And it wasn't just about what it meant to be saved or unsaved. He was very clear. He said it himself. You know what? There's some people that hate me. Because... I had to talk to him about what their lives were like. And you know, he calls us as the church to do that too. Which means strong emotions will come with that. Jesus was said, you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do some stuff. You're going to have to carry some weight. It's going to feel heavy. In fact, he said, I'll say it this way, pick up a cross. In their culture, that just shocked the room. 
because it wasn't clean, it wasn't nice, it wasn't pretty. And I'm not here to undersell the kingdom of God. In fact, if anything, I, I could never oversell it for the reality of what it is. But in God's wisdom, he walks us through this short journey of belief and unbelief. He begins to build it together in some kind of functional ways. We see it in Nicodemus' life. You know, this is going to call into confrontation what people are saying about me and, and how they're talking to me. And am, am I going to still live for Jesus when I don't get their approval, their acceptance, when it's tough in the room, when it's awkward? What am I going to do? And then he just kicks it into high gear at the beginning of chapter 8. You know what the beginning of chapter 8 is? The woman called in adultery. That's a tough one, isn't it? There were some people that rushed in, snatched this girl up out of bed. She was actively having sex with a man that was not her husband. And there was a legal consequence that came with this. Now, never mind they left this guy behind. They didn't bring him out. And you know that's the insanity of sin? You get that, right? There will be people that will sin and will seem to never suffer a consequence. And then there will be others who seem to suffer more than what they're due. But it's all sin. It all has a penalty. And she's drug out there, and Jesus is having two conversations. And I think his calmness is really misunderstood. Because the people that are angry at him and demand justice, they're frustrated because his calmness seems to not clearly identify her sin. And if she makes a, a really serious mistake, she can mistake the calmness of Jesus as her sin's not that big of a deal. And that he just tried to kind of pave an easy way for her. When in reality, he's trying to get both parts of the crowd in one direction. If you're looking for your approval and what the crowd says, you're not likely going to come out very comfortable. And if you live inconsistently, you're always going to carry a frustration and anger inside of you. Consistency is tough, right? Because real Christian level, Consistency is attacked when I tell one person I'm going to pray for them, but then I go gossip about somebody else. Consistency is attacked when we say how important marriage is, but then our, even our minds drift and, and our eyes look at things, and we create fantasy for ourselves, and even we step outside the bonds of marriage. Consistency is, is tested when to find acceptance within family, within a church, within work, whatever it is. We say things, we do things that really don't match the Word of God. And Jesus lays it out. And people that don't believe and people that do believe and people that are just caught in the situation they're caught in. This reality. That to be consistent, to believe, to be faithful, it's going to be difficult. It's not a 12-step manual called the Christian life. So, like many of you, I find myself busy at many days 
um, I, I joke and, and I had this conversation with um, Nathan Cotman uh, between services. We joked about not having time for hobbies. So I've, I've started getting a little bit better of getting, um, getting hobby quick fixes. Uh, for me, one of them, um, because I, I, I kind of have a creative part of me. When I was a youth pastor, part of my creativity was just coming up with just the most off-the-wall games that I could come up with just to test the reasonability of teenagers. Um, I've done some art. I've done some writing, just different things. And you, you kinda, I kind of get that itch to kind of get that out a little bit and interact with that. And so I was, uh, I was able to get a camera a couple years ago. So what I do now sometimes is just on my way between places, I'll stop somewhere, or sometimes I'll just take an hour, maybe you know skip eating lunch because I'm, I've over-invested there, um, and I might just go somewhere and take some pictures. And what I really like is, is not just taking big. I don't, I don't, I'm not really one that just gets a lot of just big, big picture things because in life um, I can catch the big picture pretty well. Um, where I struggle a lot more is the fine details, whether I don't finish something well or, or something's not organized enough on that level. And, and ironically, when, when I take pictures, that's, that's the part that I really like. Well, my, this is probably the smallest, well, this is for sure the smallest lens I have. I don't have that many, but um, this is a 50-millimeter lens. It's, it's always at 50 millimeters. And it's, um, it's a fixed aperture. It's a 1.8 now. Um, there's probably people in here that know a lot more about photography than I do, but in my limited understanding, that always takes in the exact same amount of light. Um, and this lens in particular is really good at drawing in the detail that's that's up close and and blurring what's behind it. And at times even blurring a little bit of something that's right in front of you to catch something right past that. And it does it on photographs and video. Um, many of our phones do it just on photographs. So I've really gotten a lot of use out of this lens. Now, this lens, average price of this lens, um, you can find it probably about anywhere that sells it for about $125. Um, so with that being said, please don't steal this because um, I don't really have $125 to buy this, um, and, and it was a gift, so, so thank you for not doing that. Um, I've looked at the same lens, same quality, same kind of, same kind of effect, end effect, um, but one that would, that would do it from a greater distance, like four or 500 millimeter. Um, because if you're watching your kids play sports or doing anything like that, it's like you can be right there to get that clear image that you want, but in reality, you're, you're not in the game. You're, you're outside the fence. You're far away. The problem is, is that lens, decent quality used, is reasonably about $1,800. New, a lot more than that. Because there's a great cost associated with being able to be far away but getting the intimate details and being right in that scene that you want to be in. And I I want you to understand something as a church family together. There is a great cost associated with trying to live a life that we stay at a far distance but we still want to get the picture. We want to know what's going on. Because this lens, I can get the picture, but it requires me to always be much, much, much closer to what I want to see. And I have to go through some extra work. It's it's 50 millimeters all the time. So if I'm going to take a picture of Dale, it may be fine where I am. I may have to get closer or I may have to back up. I have to do the work. 
And one of the messy parts about being a believer and being in a, in a, in a, in a spiritual community, a Christ-centered family, is that it will always take work and you will always have to get close if God has anointed you to be that person in that situation. It will always involve that kind of effort and that kind of mess. And remember what it is you're getting closer to. The cost comes in is when we try to have the convenience, like the unbelief of this first group, and say, I want to be more comfortable. I don't want to be as close. That characterizes unbelief. It, it shows inconsistency with, with what Jesus preaches and teaches. And the reality is, if we look 40 years out into the future, Right now, if I look from now to 40 years out to the future, right now, like in most seasons, um, we have people in our church and we have some specific situations that aren't the cleanest and aren't simple. One, two, three, boom, done. And I want you to believe that your church is going to be committed to be there for you and your family. But that's not just a statement. That takes something. Because honestly, somewhere between now and 40 years, it might be me. I may need you more than you need me. I don't have that crystal ball. My wife may need you. I don't know. But as believers, if we're going to be believers... And we're going to look like Jesus followers. We got to figure it out together. We got to ask Jesus. He knows. And you may think, well, this can, there's no way this can line up. I think you'll be amazed at what he'll show us. We got to keep going back and back and back and back. This chapter draws lines. Crowds separated. And that's cool. That's, they're actually exactly where Jesus wants them. And I want you to be comfortable. I want to be, heck, I want to be comfortable. But I just don't know that that's the most reasonable and healthy goal for us. Not if we want to live most in his will and his word. Would you bow your heads for a second? Um, we're going to end the service a little bit differently. I know I had a lot to work through this morning, and I appreciate your patience as I've done that. Um, I really hope that the word of God has spoken to you. Um, this was one good picture while we're captivated here in the moment that we have an opportunity to look through and see. And, and out of this, um, what we see is a whole big look is we see frustration and anger and concern and, and we see several things like that in people's lives when Jesus didn't look like the Savior that they wanted. And in our lives, as people, especially collectively together, we'll sense and feel anger and frustration and, and, and division and disconnect when Jesus, and, and particularly the Christian life, doesn't look like doesn't look like what we wanted it to be or thought it should be. And I know there's a lot that would say this to you, but I want you to hear me in this. You know, part of being believers together 
is that we are here together to have conversations. If you have questions and concerns about anything going on in your life or anything that you see going on, I would love to have that conversation with you. I don't want you to be inconsistent. I don't want to be inconsistent. I don't want us to be tempted to, to, to cheat, lie, gossip, have affairs. I mean, I, I, just across the board. I want us to be faithful people, not just to, uh, not, just to not look bad, but, but to live righteously. But I want us to do it while we live together. We're going to pray right now. I'm going to lead you in prayer. And we're going to sing through a song of praise. And, 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 and it's going to be um, the conclusion of our service. Our ushers will be taking up our offering. But if you would like to pray, I still want you to come up and pray. If there's anything that you want to talk about, I want us to make sure that we're available for that. God, thank you so much for your great mercy. God, thank you so much that as we've sung today the truth of God's word and as we seek to live it out, Lord, that just simply we can understand the very plain fact, God, that yes, you love us greatly and, and you call us um, to yourself. And, and God, you, you lay so many proofs down for what we can see to have confidence that Jesus is our Savior and that we can know you through him. But there's much more that Jesus showed us. And God, help us to embrace the, the beauty of belief in, in consistency and, and seeking you for acceptance. And God, following Jesus in will and in word. Lord, help us where we, we struggle and where we're weak and put us in front of the people that, that, that we can talk to, God, to hear your, your truth again and again and again. Lord, we do know you're working. You show us evidence of it. So God, help us to live in that and, and find joy in that. And God, we want to worship you. Not for just good things, but God, we want a God that is so good that we can rely on him again and again. And God, when you, when you make ways and you do miracles, God, help us to never forget that, that there's no need for that if everything is beautiful and simple and clean. That we can't fall in love with a miracle and not be involved in a mess at some point in our spiritual journey. So God, if that's me now or if that's someone else now, God, let us, let us ground in that. God, if, if our day is coming, Lord, help us to wait patiently and look intently. God, help us to, to give to you now faithfully and, and, and in grace, God, for what you've given to us. Lord, help us to pray and to consider our walk with you. God, thank you for this journey in the book of John. Many times, God, in my life, you've already showed me that you put this on my heart and on our church's heart for us to walk through, to all grow in different ways. And for many, God, many, many days in the last few weeks, your word has been so rich and so real. And God has been right on time. So, Lord, thank you for that blessing. So as we sing, Lord, may we in some way bless your heart for just the credit we give Jesus for his goodness, God, and your plan in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Our usher's going to go ahead and come up front. Guys, as you see each other, if you'll start taking up your offering. And thank you so much for your patience today. Thank you for listening to the word. We love you.